Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 16 this morning. As you're turning there, uh, I had a conversation with my son getting ready for GA. I was hoping I was going to get to see him. He's uh, doing youth ministry in Meridian. And I said, well, just pray for me. I've got a big week, and then I'm headed to Pear Orchard to pray. And all he said was, well, Dad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. (laughs) I said, well, Caleb, you're right. And it was encouraging to me to be reminded that why we open the Word of God is because we find his joy, his strength, and his authority If you do a favor for me this morning, it will feel awkward, but it will be memorable. uh, memorable. Please take your Bibles and raise them up over your heads for just a minute, your phones or whatever you have. We're simply doing this as an exercise that we would believe that we sit under the authority and the power and the doctrine of Scripture. We don't sit alongside it with our traditions the traditions of men, and we don't sit over it as scoffers who have the the right insight. We sit under its teaching, its power, and its authority. This sermon really is about the hope and sufficiency, the doctrine of Scripture. The text before you, if you were a young believer like me at Ole Miss, you were excited to read a passage like this, for the Word of God is living and active, you got, yes, Put that on my fridge. We actually had fridges that things could stick to. And you could actually memorize on cards in your Bible studies. Yes, the Word of God, living and active, yes. But as I've grown older and been in ministry for 22 years now, this passage has become more and more humbling, sobering, even humiliating. Because this passage is ultimately uh, designed to drive us to the end of ourselves and to look at ourselves honestly before the throne of God, before his word, and to do one thing, to ask the question, where can I find a priest who will mediate the grace and mercy of God to me? Who will sympathize? Who cares about my plight and my struggle? And so these verses are so powerful. This is a great sermon that this Hebrew writer wrote a long time ago, and hopefully it will be a great encouragement to us this morning as we take up God's word again, beginning in verse 11. The Hebrew writer writes this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, and of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time or in time of need. The grass withers, the flowers fall, the word of our God will endure forever and ever, long after you and I lie silent in the grave. This word will accomplish everything that God has intended. Let's pray together. 
Our Lord and our God, we come before your sight. You're our Father. We're found out. You know everything about us. This text reminds us of that. Our lives before you remind us of, us, of that this morning. We pray that you would come by the power of your spirit and the power of your word, and you would change us. You would give us belief where there is unbelief. You would wake up dead and sleepy hearts, and you cause them to be alive to look to Jesus, this great high priest. So help us to hear your word and be doers of it. Help the one who preaches. Indeed, his sins are many. May we see Jesus and him only. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The statement we've often maybe used is, there is no rest for the weary, or maybe another kind of slang way of saying that, I'm crazy busy. It's a very fitting way in which we think about our lives so often. I would even say at this moment, I'm, a little, I'm like a little piece of overcooked toast. I'm a little toasty around the edges. I'm a little tired. There's a little bit of weariness, right? And you know in your life, when you get to those crazy busy moments, or you say there is no rest for the weary, you actually are nearing the moment of exhaustion. <laughs> that you're ending the ability to have resources to continue on. And many of us will say about the situations, maybe the situations that were even prayed for this morning, will say, well, I'm really glad that situation is over and I'm ready to move forward. Or I'm glad these events happened last year. I just can't wait for the rest of 2023. But the real question we should ask ourselves as we come to the end of ourselves as we grow weary, is what is our hope? We, we actually somehow think that there is greater hope beyond the moments in which we live. That, that well, hopefully down the road, it surely it will be a lot better than the circumstances I find myself in this morning. But hope, you see, must be tied to something that is lasting. More importantly, in this text, hope must be tied to a person a person who alone who can provide rest for stubborn and weary souls like ourselves. In this passage, God's people need rest. That's the main idea. Initially, the idea of rest was about the relationship of the creatures of God, his creation to the creator, to find rest, to know all created things are held in the word, by the word of his power. But now in light of Christ's coming, rest has a greater redemptive focus. God is seeking Sabbath rest for his people in a fallen creation as his fallen creatures. Well, how do we know this? Well, God describes this rest in great detail through his word. Here, Deuteronomy 5.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In Mark's gospel, he records that Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is, is Lord even of the Sabbath. We see in these verses that the idea of rest and Sabbath is tied to our redemption to Jesus Christ Himself. This letter of written to the Hebrews reveals to us a people who are ready to walk away from the faith walk away from Christ alone, by grace alone, those great doctrines we hold on to. Why? Because they were being persecuted. They were being challenged by what they believed, and they wanted to run back to their Old Testament systems of sacrifices and Sabbath days and moon festivals and all types of things. 
And it's not hard to understand that when the heat and pressure come, they wanted to revert back to which, that which they knew. But the author here exhorts his audience and exhorts us to the rest that God provides. A rest that is to be experienced in the promises of God's word and the provision of God's son. This, is, this letter is for the church, and we might say it was an evangelistic message for God's people. And like the recipients of this letter, our tendency is to seek rest in ourselves and to manage our lives apart from God. And that is nothing less a recipe for great spiritual disaster that many of you, like myself, know all too well. So God's word exposes our unbelief this morning. It lays us naked and bare before God so that we might find rest in Jesus, our great high priest. There are three beautiful sermonic images in this text. There's the picture of, the, of a sword, right, and it being connected to the word of God and his spirit. There's the picture of a priest ascended on high who has passed through the heavens, even Jesus, and lastly, there's this picture of a throne, a sword, a priest, and a throne. Those images drive this text, move this text along to the great hope that we have that Jesus knows us and indeed he loves us. So notice with me in the first place that the Christian life is one of living by the sword in verses 11 to 13. It is in these verses that we are told that the word of God is a sword beyond all compare. It is living, it is active, it is never put down, it never goes dull, it has range and depth in exposing the truth about ourselves and the nature of our weariness before God, caused by hard-heartedness. By the way, that is the entire context of chapter 4. The people of God hardened their hearts. That's why the Hebrew writer exhorts them. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his word, if you know his promises, don't do this. Don't harden your hearts. And so here we have, in verse 11, there is this promise of, let, of rest. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. To strive to take hold of God's promises to believe in God's wonders, his miracles, and his powers back in the Old Testament then, and for us, all the Old Testament and new today. The promise of rest is described by this Hebrew writer as truth, as, as reality, a truth that is contained in the word of God, that is clothed in God's creation and providence throughout redemptive history. You see, all things are according to God's plan because all things are tied to the word of God's truth. You may remember that confrontation that Jesus had with Pilate before his death. And there's a lot of conversations about who he was and was he the Messiah. And Je Jesus simply said, everyone who listens and knows truth and obeys my voice, he is, my, he is a Christian, he is my child, he is my, he is my disciple. And you remember what Pilate says, what is truth, right? And washes his hands. You see, the living truth, the very word of God in Jesus Christ incarnate was standing before Pilate and declaring that all things were according to plan, even at his death. This means, of course, that the promise, this promise of rest is tied to God's character, that the God of the Bible labors for our salvation but he, because he rests his eternal plan upon Christ. 
But our indifference to God's activity in redemption and his provision for rest for weary souls for us is the great warning of this passage. We are to strive, we are called to enter into the rest that God has provided on a day, in a person, by his grace, through his word. We are not to try to seek another way of rest for ourselves. And this is really, really hard for modern evangelical Christians, right? Because we live in a day when things get hard or difficult, when they get awkward. We can simply just pick up our phone, turn on our TV, binge watch mindlessly some show on Amazon or Netflix, and sort of pretend we're escaping or resting. And there's, not, there's also the idea that we're going to go on this magic vacation, which you have spent a lot of money on, that you're about to go on, or that you just got back from. And you were counting on that vacation to give you the rest that you needed, only to be disappointed probably most often. And so often we seek to find rest through distraction or indulgence or simply just getting away. But here is the promise of rest in the word of God, the promises of God that we are to take hold of by faith. So there is a promise of rest in verse 11. There's also, there is the pain of exposure in these verses 12 and 13. The saying, those who live by the sword die by the sword is a fitting statement for the church because we must learn to die to self so that we might truly live in God. Again, the, the sword, this sword, the word of God, the spirit of God has range and meaning and power. And this word demands that we take it up, that we know it, that we own it, that we live by it, that we strive to understand it. Indeed, it is a sharp word. It's a word of sanctification, wherein we do die to sin and live under righteousness. It's a piercing and a discerning word. God's, God's word actually wounds us and exposes us. Why? So that we can find healing in Christ alone. This, demur, this word demands that we take it up, and this word dismisses our attempts to hide, which is the same issue that our first parents in the garden fell into as they ran away in their sin and unbelief, and it's the same struggle you and I have this morning even as we come into worship. But all things are naked and exposed before God. His word is effectual. His word is urgent for us. It is realistic. It's not pretentious. But it does keep the score. Right? That's what the text says, right? It, it is exposes uh, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You can't run from the gaze, the quorum deo, living before the face of God. And that's why this passage reminds us that we desperately need rest in the promises of God found in a person. Now, one of my shows that some reason I liked on the Discovery Channel was, or Animal Planet was Fatal Attractions. It was about people who decided to buy very dangerous animals. Most of these animal or pet owners own reptiles like very, very poisonous snakes from around the world. It was fascinating because it was like, you know, going to NASCAR, you want to see what happens. What's going to happen? I don't know. But it, what, what, became, what, was, what was amazing about these people was that there were people who became so obsessed with these dangerous snakes that they, had, that, that they would lose them in their house. They lost a sense of fear. 
They became forgetful and clumsy in how they handled them. And this is because they had begun to do what? They began to humanize something very dangerous, this snake or animal, until, of course, they, they were bitten, right? And those shows would go on to talk about that. But even after they were bitten, they, did, they often did not call the police or ambulance in, fre- in fear of losing their animals, their snakes, because they would have been found out that their obsessions would have been exposed. Two things happened to them. Complacency and exposure drove their obsessions. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the reason we often fail to take up God's word in our lives is one of complacency and exposure. On the one hand, we become complacent with God's word as if it were powerless to do any good in our lives. And then on the other hand, we do, not, we do, we do fear God's word exposing us for who we really are. Indeed, this word exposes the deep and intricate unbelief that exists in all of our hearts, all the nook and crannies, the labyrinth nature of our hearts. It reveals how we try to humanize our sin before God, or worse yet, how we try to humanize God. And God is not deluded or deceived by our sin. We have nothing to offer him. He only has everything to offer us. So what does it mean to be living by the sword of God's word? Surely it means that we must examine our lives through the lens of Scripture constantly. That we must bring and bear a biblical world and life view that speaks to every area of our life. That we go to the Scriptures to understand the nooks and crannies of our hearts and the issues that exist in our world. And we bring those Scriptures to bear in the way in which we live. And we apply those Scriptures and ask God to give us wisdom by His Spirit in the application of the truths that we learn. You know, it's what Jesus said in John chapter 3, right? After the great, the great announcement that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, there's, there's some commentary after that, and it's this. This is the judgment that men love the darkness rather than the light. And what Jesus goes on to say, as John records for us, is that those who are children of God, who believe it in the Son for eternal life, do one thing. They keep on bringing themselves into the pain and the presence of that light so that darkness can be driven out. And so here's the picture that you and I bring the scriptures to bear in our lives so the light of the gospel might drive out darkness, might drive out unbelief and fear. Why do you think church planters really want to plant a church? Surely it has something to do with the fact that they actually believe that the word of God is so powerful because of the spirit of God that they want to take that word to the world. That's what every missionary wants to do. That's what you should want to do as missionaries in this community. But church planters want to go. They want to see people gathered around his word. They want to see new people gathered under the power of the gospel, the message of the gospel, a power which can transform them and it can transform anyone in whom they deal with at any time and any place. The Christian life is one of living by the sword. The second thing that the Hebrew writer leads us to understand as he drives us desperately to this high priest in verses 14 to 16 is that the Christian life is one in resting in the priest. It's resting in the person and work of Jesus. 
Our understanding of Christ as the great high priest is essential to our finding rest in him. The word of God drives us to despair ourselves so that we might look to another man, this man Jesus. He is the one who understands our plight. He is the one who understands our struggle against sin, our unbelief, the hardness of our hearts, the things that he knows that no one knows about us. He knows everything about us, right? This word drives us to this priest. And notice that there's content to our confession, as the Hebrew writer says. He says, let us hold fast to our confession, our belief, our trust in what? That Jesus is the great high priest, that he's passed through the heavenly places. He's made it to the other side. He has a glorified body. He was crucified for you and for our sins. And he's been raised and placed and seated on the other side. That's our hope. He's already home. He is the testifying one before the Father and to us because he's passed through the heavens to secure a place for you and for me. This man, Jesus, serves as the great high priest in the courts of heaven above. All of the Old Testament priests could not deliver the rest and promise that Jesus provided. All of those sacrifices which it was said of the writers who looked at the day of Yom Kippur, of the great day of atonement, when there would be blood pouring out of the temple. All those sacrifices were not sufficient enough to pay for our sin. Only Jesus and only him alone, not once, but eternally he reigns and presents our iniquities before his father as the one being crucified upon the cross in our place. Not a sacrifice we bring, but only the sacrifice he brings will be sufficient. And he has offered himself as that sacrifice. He's the kingly priest. He's the one who's gone before us. And this man, Jesus, sympathizes with sinners. He knows when we're hungry. He knows when we're troubled. He knows when we are tempted. He knows what we need. And that ought to bring you and I great comfort this morning. It's actually kind of amazing, right, that, that Jesus was tempted in every way yet without sin. I always think of that phrase and I go, what? Yes, he was tempted in every way without sin. But I don't understand that because I'm easily tempted and I sin. I easily fall into belief. But you realize the ongoing onslaught for 33 plus years of Jesus facing temptation it's like the cosmos was on the edge of the seat in the existence of the person and work of Jesus watching the Son of God. One wrong move, one error, one failure, and the world, the cosmos, the universe is lost. Every single temptation he endured, every trial he endured. Why? For you and me. So there's hope in our unbelief. There's hope when we're tempted to sin. And there's hope and we sin because Jesus is passed in heavenly places. Our, our temptation often gives way to sin. And you and I can never say that God does not understand where I am or what I'm going through. This is a cosmic impossibility. God knows his people and knows what they need. And he seated his son according to the very purpose of interceding and even sympathizing with our weaknesses.
This man, Jesus, also is seated on the throne. His work is on display. It is final. His work is faithful, and it is deliberate. And lastly, in this text, in verses 15 to 16, there is the confidence in a throne. The confidence in a throne. He says, let us draw near to this throne, right? Why? For grace and mercy. This, this throne provides unprecedented access. God is always willing to hear you at every moment of every hour and every scenario of your life. We have this kind of access, which the Old Testament people long to know in the fullness of what we know now in Christ. This throne displays the divine help and provision of God's grace. We need his grace and mercy desperately. And you always have to ask yourself when it asks the question, you know, in our time of need, right? To find grace, to find mercy, and to find grace to help in time of need. When are we not in need? <laughs> when is there a moment when we do not need the mercy and the grace of God? You know, we sing, we need thee every hour, right? We need, we need Jesus every nanosecond of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, and all the years that he would give us. We need his grace and mercy every single solitary moment of our life. And this throne provides mercy and payment and the very hope of rest. Our rest is seated on the throne. No one sympathizes like he does. No one knows you like he does. And when you seek him, he promises to, to sustain you. Our task is to hold fast to our confession and to draw near to his throne. We live in an age filled with little sympathy, with bruteness and ugliness of violence and unbelief. We live in a day of great distraction, very little reflection I remember a pastor quoting another pastor in this language. We work at our play, we play at our work, and we rest at our worship. But all of these things are tied to Christ and his lordship over our lives. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, of rest, and what that word means. So how will we reflect and how will we run to make worship and the service of God a priority in our lives? This morning, we must continually develop a theology of rest. Our Sabbath understanding must become holistic if it is to be redemptive in our lives. Yes, it is one day in seven. Yes, it is a principle. Yes, it must be a practice. And each generation, like Joshua's of old, must enter into that rest that God has provided through his son Jesus, according to his word and to his promises. We must enter the reality of rest furnished in Christ and in him alone. So if we locate our rest and Sabbath keeping apart from the life-giving power of the Savior and his Spirit, then the Sabbath or rest loses its redemptive meaning and purpose for our lives. We don't provide rest for ourselves. God does, for, God does so for us in Christ. And this is why Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Christian life is one of resting in this man, Jesus, the great high priest, our God. I'll close with this. A few years ago, it was Father's Day, and my dear wife bought me a green egg cookbook. And, you know, if you own a green egg, it's 
can cook up to 650, 700 degrees. It's a grill. It's a smoker. It can do everything. Sometimes, right? But so she gave me this beautiful cookbook with all these beautiful pictures. And I remember on Father's Day, just kind of, wow, look at that picture there. That looks good. Salivating at every picture going, man, I hope I can cook something like this. This looks good. And uh, as I went through and read the recipes and, and looked at each of those things, I was astounded, right? But of course, the challenging part of any cookbook is actually preparing those recipes and cooking the food just right. And that thing is not easy to cook on if you've ever tried sometimes. You know, it's one thing to look at pictures in a cookbook. It's entirely another thing to actually serve them. It's a good to have a cookbook, to look at the pictures, to learn the recipes. But if you never savor and experience the food, why do you have a cookbook? You see, pictures are one thing, but partaking is quite another. The words of Scripture picture the rest of God provided in Christ for his people. And we must daily run to him if we can partake of and experience the saving rest only he can provide. We cannot sit back and say, wow, that looks great. No, we are called to enter the rest which Christ has provided in himself. And this only takes place as we hold fast our confession of Jesus and draw near to his throne of grace where we find mercy. My friends, you are going to become weary. The only question is, where are you going to find rest? And he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful that you intercede for us in all of our weakness and our unbelief. We're thankful that you poured out promises upon us by the power of your spirit, O oh God, that we might love you, we might serve you, we might ultimately find our rest in you. Help us this day to say in our hearts and in our minds that the joy of your salvation is the hope of our hearts. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for your mercy. It's always there in our time of need. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.